From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. You know, they stand in horseshoes and you prick your, your, your finger and drip blood on a picture of St. Michael the Archangel and blah, blah, blah. I've been attending GA matches since 1972. The first match I attended actually, an inter-county match was Cock and Tip at Zabilo and Limerick in 1972. We're either going to outlive them yes. or we're going to put them in kind of a kind of a storage, a humane storage. Right. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, the wives and mothers of mafia mobsters, the Turkish cosmetic surgeries that want to fix you, and Ryan Tuberty watches 15 minutes of the UK coronation. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show, which I know, but look, it's nothing that a little facelift, tummy tuck and butt boost couldn't fix, right? The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with Ryan, well, first teasing the possibility of another PK on the Late Late Show, and then giving us behind the scenes of Ed Sheeran's appearance on last Friday's show. He very kindly gifted me a guitar, which was, I was flabbergasted, to be honest with you, because what, what I didn't realise behind the scenes was that he had said to the, to the team, um, I really want to give Ryan this guitar. And they said, OK, well, we won't tell him. We can surprise him on the night, which was really nice. And then he said, I want to make sure, because there were two guitars beside him, if you saw on, on, the, on the show. And he, re- he wanted to make sure that, he got the, that I got the guitar that he played a few times throughout the programme because then he could it, it just has a different, more, I suppose, meaningful uh, impact, which it did. I was, I was, as I say, blown away by the by the kindness of the gesture. And then he signed it and, uh, and I'm going to play it. I mean, I say play it. I'm just going to strum away and, and enjoy it and, and uh, torment my neighbours. But apart from that, it's going to be, it was a very nice thing because he said, don't, don't hang it up on the wall. He said, I give away a guitar every now and again and they hang it up and it becomes a museum piece in people's houses. He said, no, it's there to be played. So... I'll do that. So very, very, very thoughtful. Very, very nice. I watched a bit of the coronation on Saturday uh, with a cup of tea <laughs> and some toast. Uh, and I was, I, I just thought it was kind of bizarre. Like brilliant pomp and ceremony. I thought if I was there, I'd be, I'd be maybe a little bored, but or, or not. Maybe I'd be just so like Nick Cave, just looking around going, this is amazing. Look at all this. Look at this ceremony. Look at all this history. Uh, so I, I lasted about 15 minutes. I said 10, but 15, I think. I went an extra five. And I thought, that's enough. Now, I've seen all I need. I think it's going. It's moving at a glacial pace. And that's what you'd expect it to. Uh, <laughs> at one point, I think I started laughing. But this is ma- it's actually reminded me of Shrek. You know, Lord Farquhar. And, you know, I don't, don't mean Shrek himself, but just the, 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 that, that, that era, almost medieval type trumpets. And I thought the music was amazing. Like really, the voices and the choir it was like something out of a movie. It was so beautiful, and the synchronicity of everything working. I said, you know, we do our shows from the chip van. Sometimes we call them OBs. I said outside broadcast. I said that looked like the most horribly difficult OB of all time. I'm not trying to get everything right, um, but it was it was it was it was engaging. And I was trying to figure out who is this woman with the sword and that seems to be leading the way, and she looked like it was kind of like. Game of Thrones meets the Windsor's cosplay and she was walking around with the it was only later on that evening when I was out with friends and they said what do you think of Penny Mordant with this I said Penny Mordant Penny Mordant who nearly became the Tory leader in the last um, Hunger Games election that they had I said that's amazing I never, I never realised it and if you look at the British papers today they're all about Penny Mordant so 
what it was, she was carrying this this sword. It's a three hundred and fifty year old ceremonial blade, weighs about three and a half kg. And because she was a Royal Navy reservist, she's 50 years old, as it says in the papers here, and she had been trained to become, you know, you can have army trained, and and she she wanted to be, or she was she was the first woman to carry uh, carry out this role, and uh, being in the armed forces, standing for long periods of time and not fainting helped that, and sure enough, um, they they're now talking about her fitness regime <laughs> and how well she did to carry this thing for over an hour. They're calling it the warrior princess outfit. And uh, f- for the first part of the service, she, she carried this sword in a scabbard, which features moles of lions and unicorns and shamrocks with a crimson red velvet covering with a strap around her neck to take some of the weight. And there was no formal uniform for this occasion because they never had a female Lord President. So she paid for the outfit to be made out of her own coffers. And she said she felt it wasn't right to wear the customer uniform because it was made for a man. So she came up with something that she thought was modern, but with a firm to her. And it was the least modern outfit I've ever seen. I thought, <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 that's not to say it wasn't striking. It sure was. But she paid for it because there was no budget. It was designed by Safia and stitched with this fern motif, a nod to the Privy Council. A teal colour called Poseidon is a reference to her Portsmouth constituency. And she wore pearl drop earrings and arrived in ballerina flats with crystal studded bows before changing into heels for the ceremony. Fans of Game of Thrones became increasingly excited online, I can imagine, likening her to a fictional warrior princess in gladiator robes striding through the rain as manservants held umbrellas over her head. If you haven't seen it, look it up. You know exactly what we're talking about. And then, of course, they had a big concert last night because I, I looked at how stony-faced the king had to be and the queen had to be. And I, I, it's the gravity of the ceremony, and that's fair enough. They're not meant to be winking and laughing at each other, but it did feel cold in some ways. Beautiful, but cold, like the winter sun. And yet they had their concert last night. I think that's where the crack was, and they're all laughing and having fun. So that, that's, that's grand. Kermit the Frog showed up. Did you know that? Kermit the Frog and Piggy showed up at the, at the concert. Lucky king. And um, Katy Perry was there, take that. Tom Cruise told Charles he could be his wingman. Winnie the Pooh showed up too. So they were all in there having the lols, <laughs> right loyal lol, lol off. Uh, and that's the end of that. It was all very, very curious, the whole thing, and, and um, mildly entertaining. But presumably not as entertaining as strumming Ed Sheeran's guitar. Ryan's op-ed there on the 15 minutes of the UK coronation that he says he watched. Among the musings this morning, there was also a tribute to the renowned fiddle player Sean Keane, who died yesterday. We did lose, though, as you probably heard in Morning Ireland, one of Ireland's greatest talents this weekend, and very importantly, Sean Keane, who I would have met on a few occasions. Um, He was only 76, and he passed away at the weekend. His family said it was unexpected. It was at his home on uh, yesterday morning, according to um, the RT.ie website. He was a member of Coolan in the 60s, and of course, and he formed performed with lots of trios and duets formed by Paddy Maloney, the great leader of the Chieftains, uh, whom he joined in 1968. He had his own solo album as well. And the Irish Traditional Music Archive said that the that organisation was devastated to learn of Sean's passing. And I'm um, sure we pass on our condolences to the Keane family. May you rest in peace. Well, I think we should play it just a little, just as a flavour. Um, this is uh, Sean... Keane, the late Sean Keane with Matt Malloy and this is the Seamus Ennis jig.
That's lovely. That's uh, Sean Keane and Matt Malloy and the Seamus Ennis jig. A short tribute to the Chieftains fiddle player Sean Keane who died on Sunday. Another item that caught Ryan's interest was the opening of a new Buddhist temple in Dublin. Ireland's first Vietnamese Buddhist temple opened in Dublin over the weekend. How about that? Uh, it was named the Min Tam Pagoda. It is located in the Malahide Road Industrial Park in Kulak. And senior monks from the international Buddhist community were present for the ceremony. It was also attended by Minister for St- of State for Transport and the Environment and Climate and Communications, Jack Chambers. It is estimated there are over 4,000 Vietnamese Buddhists from a Vietnamese population of 10,000 living in Ireland. In August 1979, writes Alva Keneally and the government agreed to take over just over 200 Vietnamese boat people who were fleeing the communist regime in Vietnam. At first, they were accommodated in Red Cross centres in Blanchardstown and Swords before they moved on to rented local authority housing in Dublin and other parts of the country. So this place is, this temple is open, is, is located, I should say, in a disused industrial building. And um, it's, it was supported with gifts and loans from people in the Vietnamese community in Ireland and overseas. And they'll have services every Sunday and for cultural festivals such as Tet, the Lunar New Year and Buddha's Birthday and Parent Day and Mid-Autumn Moon Festival. Causal law, which means do good and good comes back, is most important to the faith of Vietnamese Buddhists. Yeah, there you go. I wish everyone well in that endeavour. Those good wishes should come back to Ryan sometime soon, we, we must assume. But the goodness has to end there, as that's where we're leaving the musings on the news. Or newsings, if you will, from this morning's Ryan Tuberty Show. There was a shocking headline in the Irish Times over the weekend featuring a 78-year-old woman who, she says, will be homeless by the end of the month. That woman is Micheline Walsh, and she joined Claire Byrne in studio this morning, along with her son-in-law, David Farrell, who's Professor of Politics at UCD. Claire asked Micheline how she's found herself in the position she's in. I've always rented. Um, and when I, I came back to Ireland in 2011, and I, I rent, had a choice of two different places to rent, and they were reasonable rent. And uh, the first place I, I took, took one I was there for four years then something happened with with the landlords there I think they they went bankrupt or something so I looked for somewhere else I found the place I'm in now and it was perfect I found it the same day I saw it I saw it on daft went to see it and said yes I'd like it and moved in so you've been there for years yeah yeah six seven years now Mm -hmm. um I was working part-time so uh and the the rent was within my reach. Um, as as you probably know, my husband had a stroke, so he he's he doesn't work. So it was our pensions and my part time job. Then when the when COVID hit, um, my part time job went because it was with it was admin for a language school, so that closed down. Oh well, had to they they couldn't have mm-hmm. any students in, so obviously my my job went. But the reason you're having to move is because the landlord is is selling the property, isn't That's that right? The reason, so, so yeah. this is why you have no choice but yeah. to find somewhere else. Yeah. But the thing is, I if I had been still working, I might be able to afford the rents. But now, I, because I don't have that income, we just have our our pensions. There is no way that we can pay anything near the rents that are being asked. Mm-hmm. So, I suppose. 
The the landlord, uh, very nice guy, really lovely guy. We get along very well. Um, he did it. He did it in a nice way. He phoned me in advance. He said, "Look, I don't want this to land on your doorstep. I want to tell you person to person this is what I'm planning to do." And uh, at the time, I thought, "Oops," <laughs> uh, but he he said because I'd been there so long, I had almost six months. And I thought, right, okay, I better get moving. I better see what I I can do. Because at this stage, I was on rent supplement. That doesn't travel with you. If you move, you don't take it with you. You have to. So I knew I had to register for um, the the housing list. And um, I started on that. That that was a major effort. But I did different things. Like, you know, I thought, right, we're old. There's old people places. So why not go and look there? Maybe, you know, they they have arrangements for older people. But those places are... They, the people who run those places get their tenants from the council. So if it's if it's Renla, it's Dublin City Council. For us, it's Klonski, so it's Dunleary Rathdown. So I, uh, that, that was my first big mm. surprise. I did all the... the the applications, and I also did a, an application for my husband's health to be, you know, a check for that because he is, um, he had a very bad stroke. He lost the sight of half of each eye. He lost the ability to read. He, so I can't even write, write a note for him. He, um, he's not very steady on his feet because one side of his body is a bit, it, it, it sort of seizes up on him. And he gets uh, he gets occasional seizures, and so it's a it's a very challenging situation very that you're challenging in. Situation. You also have pets, yeah. um, and you've got two cats, I know, and, and a parrot, which parrot. you um, inherited or, or took I, in when when a rescue parrot, yeah, when the owner died. I mean, all of these things, and also everything that you accumulate over. A lifetime, Micheline. These are things now that you're having to think about. What are you going to do? I know, I know. I, uh, I mean, <clears throat> the the flat is furnished, but only you know beds and a sofa. There are bits and pieces that I have that I, for instance, uh, my grandparents when they first were married, they lived in Paris and they their very first flat, they got a clock. And this is a beautiful clock. It's it's not a full grandfather. It's a, like a half a grandfather. And when my uncle died five years ago, my cousin allowed me to have that clock. The reason was that when I, when I was little, I used to go to their house and the clock was in the hall and it had a pendulum that went back and forth. And I used to sit under the coat stand and listen to the pendulum and feel safe. So it's it's one of the, it's it's stupid, but you know No, it's not at all stupid. It's it's, it's, it's part of your life and it's, it's part yeah. of who you are and, and your memories. Yeah. But have you started getting rid of things now in preparation for yes. what might happen? I have, yeah, I have. I I did huge runs to the charity shop, cleared out old clothes, kept Brought it all down to the minimum. Got rid of all old papers. I got rid of books because you know you have to face. You, you, there's a novel you've read it. Why do you keep it? You don't need to keep it. There's online. So get rid of all of that. Got rid of 
knickknacks, things, uh, there's still more. But mm. um, and I'm, I've got to sell a couple of pieces of furniture that would be too big anyway. And just going back to what you've done to try and find somewhere, you've gone down the usual route where people try to find somewhere to rent, be it through the websites and the estate agents and so on. You've spoken about reaching out to the council for help. But when it comes to homelessness services, until you are actually homeless, Michelle, right, you, you yeah. can't, they can't deal with you. Is that the case? When you are, yeah, I, well, I, I learned about this as I went along. You are, I, I was on the first on the list then there's the HAP list and then there's the homeless HAP. And HAP is um, housing uh, assistance payment. So uh, we were accepted onto that when we were six weeks away from being homeless. Mm-hmm. And that, that actually happened because our original date for leaving was the 28th of November. And it was towards the end of October that the the eviction ban came into place. So that gave us uh, leeway. So but now that the eviction ban has been lifted, you're now at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um, when it came to the websites and the estate agents that I mentioned, how did you get on there trying to find somewhere yourself? Yeah, I, initially, I, I did the usual thing. I went on daft.ie and, the, and uh, my, you know, my all of those. And, yeah. yeah, all of those ones. And what you... What you have to do now is they say email. If you're interested, email. Before before all of this, you could phone up and you could get an appointment to see the place. So I email. Now, I, I was I was told by um, the, the council when when I was talking to them about when I apply for houses, you know, because you've got to find a place and then you have to agree with the landlord that they will they'll accept HAP um, and because they are not allowed to say no we don't want HAP tenants I think it's illegal or something like that so when you say you have HAP sometimes another person in the in the estate agency oops sorry they, they've already let it mm-hmm. and yeah, what can you what do? Can you do? Well, the very worrying story of how Micheline Walsh 78 is facing homelessness at the end of the month on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Farmer John Arnold wasn't watching the All-Ireland Senior Hurling Championship at the weekend and it's because it wasn't on terrestrial TV, he tells Colm O'Mungon on this afternoon's Live Line. No, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be what I call a happy camper now. Not just today, but in the last few weeks, the fact that a lot of these top-class hurling matches haven't been shown on what do we call it, terrestrial television, which is basically RT, is is a cause of great discomfort. And I, I'd be I'd be, I'd be hopping mad over it actually, Colin, because um, first of all, you know, we had a debate there over the last couple of years when Sky came to the table and Sky Television got so many matches and people had to pay for a subscription for Sky. Sky didn't depart to the scene. Was it this year or last year? And People like me, genuine J people, presume that the vast majority of the top class games would be free to air on RT. And now they come along with this J go 
business. I mean, there's, there's several reasons why I'd be absolutely livid and savage over it. First of all, I, I just think simply games like that, high-profile games like that, like to be disbeaking the Cock and Tipperary holding championship match, speaking not having the Grand National available in England on television, and not having if Liverpool and Arsenal were playing on Manchester United, Manchester City. But like second point in that is the GSA. Well, it is available on this Go your contraption thing. I have a computer below in the room, an ordinary PC, and I can type in it, and I can uh, I can get internet sometimes when I have coverage, and I can type with one finger. But, I mean, the coverage would be very patchy. There are several reasons. Why, what part why of the country are you living in? I'm living in a place called Battlemy near Fomoy in Rudel, East Cork. Um, but, like, we're just one... I suppose we're an oddity. We're not an oddity. We live... Our house is in a kind of a hollow column in the wintertime. We'd have absolutely fantastic coverage for internet and all those yokes when, the, when there's no leaves in the trees. But we're surrounded by trees, and when they're in full bloom this time of the year, it interferes with the reception. So we're very, very bad reception. But, I mean, there's thousands of, like me, people living in... this huge amount of areas of rural Ireland where you haven't internet coverage or where you haven't broadband. But allied to that, the fact that people have to go, okay, you said 12 euro, but like just the fact of having to go through the technology of your credit card and go on and you have a certain amount of time to do it. And then you're forced, like if I was watching, as if I had been sat on a little computer screen, it's not the same thing. It's just, it's just completely different. It's continuously buffering. But like the whole ethos of it is major games like this, Don Law Cusick, who I know well was on the Sunday game last night and he he was savage and he was correct insofar as hurdling is more than a game it's our national game it's part of our national heritage it's just more than a game it's part of what we are it's our culture and he used a very good phrase he said hurdling needs oxygen what does he mean by that it means coverage it means publicity you can't give hurdling too much publicity we're not an international game we're not a professional game players can't make fortunes out of it we as ordinary volunteers work in clubs we give our time freely I've been involved in my club here with over 50 years we give our time freely that's fine we're not looking for martyrdom staff so we're not looking to be paid but what you get in return then is if you can go to the games well and good I just unfortunately wasn't able to go Saturday night but the least you could expect then is that high profile games like this would be available that you could see them and I mean there used to be an excuse if, what, what's the difference between what's the difference between if you're prepared to burn the, the petrol or the diesel or maybe have an electric car to go to a match and spend that and then spend the money on the ticket and the money at the gate goes to the GAA the money from GAA go is going to GAA and people who aren't in the position to travel to matches can see it this way and the GAA is in control of what they show. But that's the problem, Colm. Thousands of people, tens of thousands of people are not in the position, even if they were willing to play 10 euro, 20 euro, 30 euro, they haven't coverage, they haven't the facilities, they haven't the technology to get it in their own homes. It's not, it's not a penny-pinching issue and it's not a question of tickets. I mean, if that game was live on RT television last Saturday night, would it have meant there'd have been only 25,000 people? No, it was a sell-out ticket. All the, all the stand tickets were gone early in the week. But I mean, the technology to be grand if it was on RT television available. But like, there, there were tens of thousands of people, I guarantee you. And you say, how do I know it? Because I know people will be ringing me and talking to me from all over the country in issues like this. They're in pockets, areas. There's people who have a television at home. There's and thousands of people who have a simple television. You turn on the television. They have no computer. They have no PC. And when you were out milking the cows, did you turn on the radio? I was listening 
started on the radio. That's right, yeah. We were we were actually making films here ourselves Saturday as a fundraiser for our own J Club. We wouldn't finish with Michael Collins and the Fetal Half Seven, so I was listening on the radio in a near piss in the Milking Parlour, which was a bit patchy as well because every time a cow would give a screech, you mightn't hear it. But I picked up the match. But that's, right. that's the point. I've been. I've been yeah, you, what, what was what was the fundraiser there? It was. Uh, were you doing those recreations of scenes of famous movies? I know a, a, a local club of my own did that before. Yeah, I think exactly. they did Braveheart. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're just after buying land for a huge pitch development cost is nearly three quarters of a million so we were nice at the Oscars at the end of May and what we were doing was we were filming the seven films and these will be shown at the end of May as a fundraiser so it just ran a bit over time Saturday but just looked for a fantastic day we had over 100 people involved last weekend and the weekend before and it's fantastic Are, are, you, it pl- are, you, are you in front of the camera or behind the camera yourself? <laughs> I was playing the part of that lecherous milkman that's delivering more than milk on Craggy Island. Pat Mustard, he was playing the part of the milkman in Father Ted. That's what I, we were being right. filmed last week. Yes. So I was in, so for a change, I was, I was in front of the camera. But like, I've been attending GA matches since 1972. The first match I attended, actually, an inter-county match was Cork and Tip at Rabi Law in Limerick in 1972. I've missed very few of them since. I had to milk had I missed them. But the point is, like, it's just an inexorable rush towards over-reliance and technology. You do the very same thing now, Colm, since, um, since, since COVID. People can't go to an inter-county match or hardly any match anymore now with cash. They have to pre-buy the ticket. They have to download the ticket. And again, maybe in 20 or 30 years' time there'll be no cash in the country. Maybe everybody will have a solar-powered computer yoke that they can watch every kind of television and that they can pay by tapping their head with a cab but that technology is not available to huge swathes, not just of rural Ireland but I know heaps of people living in towns and cities, I know all the people because I go around to a lot of functions entertaining all the people, I know a lot of people and they have a simple television are you so to... their, their television isn't geared up for such technology and uh, they don't want, you... to, they want uh, us to be able to watch games like they've always watched them in the past a pretty passionate John Arnold telling Cullum O'Mungoin on this afternoon's Live Line why GAA Go doesn't work for him and those like him. Ryan Turberty's current favourite TV drama is a show called The Good Mothers on Disney+. This morning Ryan spoke to journalist Alex Perry who wrote the novel upon which the TV show is based and he started by asking him where the idea for the book came from. I think you always find a story when you're on another story, right? So I was in um, uh, Sicily uh, doing the migrant crisis and looking into the mafia's involvement um, in, in that. It's essentially one of the answers to the question of why are hundreds of thousands of people crossing the Mediterranean to Italy is because the mafia wants them to. It's running all the migrant centres and, uh, and the language classes and so on. So I was looking into that story and um, <clears throat> I had a couple of interviews in Rome and I needed to get a local journalist to kind of uh, fix them for me. And her price was 250 euros, plus you have to come and see my play, <laughs> and, uh, which was uh, in a school on, the, on, a, on quite a sort of dodgy area on the outskirts of Rome. One woman play, a woman standing in a red dress and a cellist, and it was a monologue for an hour in Italian, which I didn't understand at the time. And then I was shoved on stage and asked to give my impressions of the play mm. and of Italy in general, actually. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and I kind of got through that with a few platitudes. And I hadn't understood anything at all, but, but one thing. I'd understood the, the name of the central character, um, which was Maria Concetta Cacciola, and I sort of went back to my hotel and Googled it. And these stories had had some coverage in Italy, 
but a bit kind of piecemeal. And no one had really put the three women together, which was odd because two of them knew each other and it was all happening at the same time and it involved the same mafia clans. Um, yeah, and that just sort of led me down a rabbit hole, really. And it was that was the start of sort of two or three years interviewing prosecutors, going through judicial documents, pe- you know, piecing this story together. Well, this is the Calabrian uh, uh, Mafia, Alex, and it's not something that I was familiar with at all before watching the, the, the show for, for starters. But uh, tell, yeah. tell, tell me about this particular brand of, of the, the mafiosa world. Well, the, 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 so there are three Italian mafias. There's the Camorra in... In fact, there's four. There's a smaller one in the heel of Italy as well, in Puglia. But the big ones are the Camorra in Naples and Cosa Nostra, which is the big famous one, the Godfather, all that in Sicily. The Andrangheta is in the in the toe of Italy, and the reason you've never heard of it is because it's bigger and better than the other ones. Wow. It doesn't run around bragging. Uh, secrecy is absolutely. Uh, well, I mean, until until these women started talking, really, even the Italian state had had only a vague idea of what it was, and and it was often dismissed as a bunch of sort of goat shepherds who did up their trousers with baling twine, and and it was only when these women started talking that people realised. Oh my God! This is a this is a fifty hundred billion dollar you know octopus that spreads around the globe, smuggling cocaine, running stolen art. It's into all kind of corruption and and you know defrauding the EU. The whole works. It's this enormous um, uh, organization, but but this 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 huge secret because it's so family based. If you think about betraying it, you're betraying. Your brother, your sister, your father, your mother, and you know everything you've ever known. So it's for that reason, it's it's much more siloed and 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 secret. And um, that's the importance of these women. They were the first really to kind of crack open this organisation. I mean, even the, the 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 ritual and the symbolism we, in in Ireland, a lot of Catholic people will be familiar, obviously, with baptism and confirmation and and, and whatever it might be. Uh, but their traditions, you know, if you're a newborn or if you hit the age of 18, if you're a boy, uh, they're they're probably about 150 years old themselves, if not if not older. These rituals that they have to go through. Yeah, well, the, the rituals are, are really interesting because they're they're incredibly elaborate. Like if you yeah, if you're a newborn baby, you they put a they slip a knife into your cot, and if you grasp the the knife, then that has some meaning about the life you're going to lead, and so. On. Uh, but it's all made up. That's what's that's what's sort of mad about it. That it doesn't go. It, it does go back 150 years, but it stops then. And it's um, it's an artifice to give this organisation, which is essentially a bunch of very nasty crooks, some kind of higher heritage, nobility, code of honour. And and it's it's all a big lie. Actually, mm. they're all acting. You know, they stand in horseshoes and. You prick your 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 finger and drip blood on a picture of St Michael the Archangel and blah blah blah. It's all made up. Um, and um, oh, that's and, okay. Uh, yeah, so so that that to me was one of the big revelations about about this organisation was 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 just the lie, but the power of the lie. Everybody's living their lie, and everybody kind of agrees to go along with it. What what is so striking about the Good Mothers is just how horrible it is to be a woman um, in in these in these organisations. Well, right. I mean, yeah. it, it 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 it's quite not only is it terrifying, it's 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 stomach churning uh, because well, and in the twenty first century, this story that yeah. is only 
10 years ago. Yeah, and you are, you know, in 21st century Europe, you've got, a, in a whole region, you've got women who are being married off or paired up at least at 13. They've had three kids by the time they're 20. Um, they are, and if they even look at another man, yeah, yeah there is, there is, you know, hell to pay. And quite often, murder. I mean, the, the, the graveyards in Calabria are full of women who've been who've been murdered uh, for being unfaithful or even sort of thinking about it or being suspected of it, and and it's it's your brother or your father that does it to to clean the family shame, and that family branding or shame or whatever you supersedes the life of the members of that family if they breach the code. Well, yeah. One of the most, I mean, the, the story of Maria Concetta Cacciola, which yeah. is, you know, in the series, is in some ways the, the most tragic. Um, she, she briefly collaborated, but it was essentially blackmailed into coming back to her family by her own mother and father, particularly her mother. So her mother knows that if she returns to the family, she's going to be killed. And she, she persuades her to do it anyway. Um, and I mean, the other part of that tragedy is is that Maria Conchetta kind of knows herself that she's going to be killed, but she can't be separated from her children any longer. I mean, it's it's wrenching. I mean, you can imagine. I'm reading these court documents. They have transcripts of the phone calls between the mother and Maria Conchetta, where her mother is is blackmailing her, and you, and you can you hear the moment where she sort of collapses, where she where she gives in, where she can't. She can't fight her own family anymore. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking. Journalist Alex Perry talking to Ryan Tuberty this morning about his book, The Good Mothers, which has been adapted into a Disney Plus drama of the same name. Now, Turkey has become an increasingly popular destination for dental and cosmetic surgery for Irish people. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, Barry Gallagher, a reporter for the Irish Sun, told Claire how he went about looking into the area. You know, bariatrics and, you know, cosmetic surgeries, as you said, are getting as popular as ever. And we just wanted to find out how, how easy it was to get recommended certain procedures. And it was as easy as uh, looking up cosmetic surgeries in Turkey, uh, clicking a WhatsApp link. And within minutes, I was I was uh, texting a consultant and getting recommendations of what procedures I should uh, should receive. So. Oh, and what information were they asking you for about yourself? Um, it was pretty pretty simple questions, um, nothing too in-depth, maybe like my age, my weight, uh, my height, uh, whether I had drug or alcohol abuse issues and whether I had recent surgeries. Uh, other than that, uh, when they were satisfied with those questions, they were they were good to go to start evaluating me. So, mm-hmm. so uh, you're young and fit and healthy, probably not a candidate people might typically think of when we're thinking about any kind of invasive treatments. Mm-hmm. Um, well, no, like, um, you know, I, I wouldn't be in, in peak physical form either, but I think that, um, you know, the procedures that I was getting recommended, I mean, I would have essentially looked like a completely different uh, different person. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously that was a bit, a bit jarring to hear that from, from um, what I believe to be was a, was a medical professional. And, and did, uh, did you tell them what sort of treatments you were interested in or did they suggest, did they look at a picture of you and go, well, you need this, this and this? Um, essentially, the procedure was very similar with each, um, with each clinic. Again, it was over WhatsApp text. So they would initially ask what, you know, I felt like I might be interested in. 
Um, at that point, I would just say I essentially, you know, kind of want to be a new me or I want to change myself. And I would say um, they would move on to uh, getting pictures of myself. So that would be full body pictures, facial, hair, teeth, everything. And they would make their recommendations based off based off that. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your teeth and one of the clinics wanted to do 24 dental implants. Your teeth look fine to me. Are your teeth OK? Uh, yeah, my teeth are uh, my teeth are in, in are in pretty good shape. Um, Twenty four crowns, like I mean, that's that's I imagine an extreme that that not many people would ever have to resort to, um, and it just kind of highlights that you know, kind of how how laxy days your kind of devil may care the procedures seem to be or the consultants the uh, consultations seem to be. It's extraordinary. Well, we go through what they offered you, so or what they recommended. So this liposuction, this was on the the stomach, was it? Yeah, so um, with the liposuction, yeah, it's, it's uh, vasor liposuction, so it's not really as intrusive as um, as more kind of traditional methods. But yeah, so they were essentially uh, wanting to do that procedure on my stomach, waist, back, uh, my, my my belly, essentially, uh, and they also wanted to do it on my my neck, my uh, my kind of my neck and chin. And what about this uh, ab sculpting that went with that? Yeah, so essentially that was a kind of an added feature. Um, they first kind of recommended the, the lipo and then they said, well, we think that you would be a good candidate for ab sculpting. Um, essentially how that seems to work is kind of a smart manipulation of, of, of the fat in my stomach to accentuate my, my abs. It obviously doesn't make them any more genuinely defined or doesn't strengthen the abs at all. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of more of a maybe a bit of an, an illusion or, or a bit of a trick to... Yeah, and and you, you, you spoke to it. experts here in Ireland, you told them what you had been offered and mm-hmm. one surgeon told you that if you gained any weight after having that ab sculpting process done that you'd look like a turtle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dr. Uh, Dr. Tracy said that because essentially what's being shown isn't isn't really my uh, my abs, it's, it's, it's fat that's been kind of smartly moved around. So I suppose once, once I... If I did re- regain weight, I mean, it would just look completely abnormal. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a turtle is a, is a very fair description okay. of that. And then when it came to the filler, what were they offering you on that front? Yeah, so the, the fillers would be, um, so uh, when I sent a picture of my face, they found that I had, uh, you know, kind of an irregularity in my in my lips and in my nose. So that was a one mil filler in those guys which, uh, speaking to experts, was, you know, not completely out of the ordinary. But what really kind of stumped um, Professor Katrina there, who I was speaking to, was eight mils in my jaw. Uh, and usually, according to experts in Ireland, you know, the absolute max that should be going into someone's mm-hmm. jaw would be would be four milliliters. Were you, offended? So Were you offended by any of this? I was staring at your face in this picture going, where is the irregularity that they were talking about? Um... <laughs> Like I, 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 I'm lucky that I kind of was putting on a bit of a, a brave face as, as as part of that investigation. But I mean, like if um, you know, if, uh, you know, body dysmorphic disorder and even just being self conscious about your body. I mean, that's something that everybody deals with on a on a daily basis, especially maybe in your later teens or early twenties. And when you know you send pictures to um, you know, to what you believe is a medical professional, and they essentially tell you that you should kind of rejig your whole body it's yeah it can be difficult to take and I'd say it's something that kind of 
it kind of hits, hits very close to home for a lot of people that do seek these procedures. Absolutely, these because people who would reach out and seek for these procedures, as you say, they obviously mm-hmm. perceive that they need to change. So if a surgeon is telling them, well, you need six treatments in order to look how I think you should look, then there are people who are going to agree to this. Um, definitely, and especially when it's so... Um it's so it's it's so easy. I mean, setting up a consultation, as I said, I clicked one one link um, after looking up one simple Google search, and there I am speaking to uh, to to a consultant. And like, even if it was just out of curiosity, or if you just felt self conscious, it's so easy to just. Mm-hmm. Ask a professional what what do you think I need? Yeah, um, let's talk about how easy it was then. So once you agree to go ahead with the procedure and then you pay yep. a deposit, you were offered a surgery date within a month. Yeah, with the first clinic I spoke to, um, that was all. That whole consultation was pretty much wrapped up in around an hour, and by at that point, I had gotten an appointment for the sixteenth of May. So that's. Yeah, less than less than two weeks from now. Mm-hmm. And what were um, they going to do? Essentially, how that was going to work was I would land uh, in Turkey on the fifteenth. Um, I would then receive my fillers, so that was in my jaw, my nose, and my lips on the sixteenth. That's the next day, and then I would have a consultation with my actual surgeon um, that evening. Now the next day, then I would undergo my my vaser procedure. So that was my. Uh, you know, belly, waist and back and my six pack procedure. And then a day later, I'd be checking out of the hospital and I'd be moved into a five star hotel. So, And how much was all that going to cost? That's including the hotel, that was €6,400. Mm-hmm. And um, what did they say to you then about the aftercare, post-recovery surgery, how you'd be looked after? In terms of aftercare, so um, with with each clinic, I would be staying in Turkey for around another week and have one uh, post-op checkup, um, you know, with with my with my surgeon. Following that, once I get back to Ireland, uh, each one offered twenty four seven online aftercare. Mm-hmm. So that's essentially probably over video chat or over text. Irish Sun reporter Barry Gallagher talking about dental and cosmetic surgery options in Turkey for Irish people. Claire Byrne this morning. Author and podcaster Sophie White joined Ray Darcy in studio to talk about her new book, My Hot Friend. So it's it's about friendship, female friendship. It is, which it is. is which is a hot topic. I, I don't like using that term, but it, you know because we had Elizabeth Day in recently, and every totally. time I open up one of the Sunday magazines, there's an article about. You wrote an article yesterday about it. I did, I did, of, and like the New York Times had a piece about right. it a couple of weeks ago. The Cut, obviously, Elizabeth Day's Friend Hollock is a non-fiction book that's just come out, yeah. and like it's really weird because it's hard to plan. You know, if you're writing a book, you're writing it a year or more in advance. It's hard to know what like. Like the cultural conversation is going to be. But like I just kept thinking there really isn't enough stories that really centre friendship, Yes, you know, and like I so I suppose the inspiration for my hot friend began like quite a few years ago when I was writing an article about friendship breakups and I put it out on my Instagram. Has anyone had a friendship breakup? Would you like to talk to me anonymously for this article? And I've never had a response like it to any topic, like the amount of 
women mainly like got in touch and they said they'd broken up with friends it had been more painful than any romantic breakups they'd ever had that they'd been you know they'd cried they'd and you know I just thought oh my god there's really something in this mm. and like so you know with my commercial fiction I'm always like seeking to entertain you know I want to write romps basically and like fun and comedy but I always have darker themes because that's life like yes. and um, so yeah I was very interested in in centering friendship. So you, the reason you did that article in the first place was because you had split up with a friend, a very good friend of yours. Now it, it all came right in the end. It was a happy ever after. Yeah, yeah, I did have one row with a friend that like really undid me, and it was quite short. <laughs> but like I can, I can go like fairly <laughs> histrionic fast, right, not right. to ninety. But the thing as well that really struck me when I was having this like kind of friendship breakup, or like we were on a break, like Ross and Rachel. Um, <laughs> It was, I was so upset. Like I was more upset than any fight I'd ever had with my husband. And I was kind of like analysing it and being like, why is it so disturbing? And then I was like, well, I've been with her way longer than I've been with my husband. I've been with her 30 years, you know. (laughs) And I'm like, not that I'd be like putting my husband out with the bins. There are conversations you probably can't, I know, not probably, there are conversations you can't have. Most women can't have with their husbands. That they yeah. can only have with their best friends. Is that fair enough to say? I mean, it's the conversations about the husbands, I guess, that you're, <laughs> right, you're bringing yeah, to your yeah, best yeah, friends. Yeah, but um, yeah, I think it's like, it, there's just something in it. Like, we're just so closely knit into our friendships and our friends. And like, I know, like, among my friends, we're like nonstop talking about like when we get old together and we've, you know, finally jettisoned the romantic partners and we're like going to move into a commune together. Or yeah, let's it's make interesting sure. that. Are they going to die or what? <laughs> how are you going to jettison them? We're either going to outlive them yes. or we're going to put them in. Kind of a kind of a storage, a humane storage, right? And you'll, you'll go off and you'll have a commune yourselves. A commune, or okay, maybe we'll right. like try and aim for the same high-end nursing home. Right. Um, okay. But it's definitely like it's definitely things me and my friends have talked about. It's like really? when can we finally live together? Like uh, you know, the stats are there: women outlive men. That's you know, the life expectancy yeah, yeah, for yeah. women is practical. older. Than, than, yeah, yes, yeah, we're just yeah, laying yeah, the groundwork. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, the I'm thing, intrigued. I'm intrigued because because it's something I haven't experienced. Obviously, because really? I'm a man. No, but I haven't yeah. like, experienced friendship, but I haven't experienced a woman, a friendship between two women because I'm a man. I can't. I can only witness from the outside. So <laughs> I'm intrigued by it. I'm intrigued by it as to how it's different. Yeah. And again, you don't know how it's different because you've never experienced a <laughs> male, you know, bromance. And so you, you don't know. But 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 I, I, I think from looking in on it, you know, mm. uh, and I, I, you know, I, I'm obviously married. I have five sisters. I've worked with a lot of women over the years. Uh, looking in on it, that, that there is, that it's stronger than male friendship friendships in many ways. Yeah, well, I don't want to generalise, but yeah, for sure, it seems that (laughs) way to me. But I think as well, the things that like, I think when it comes to friendships, I think it's really like my hot friend, what I'm hearing from readers is that like, it's really, they're relating massively. You know what I mean? It relates to their lives. And I think the things that like, kind of, you know, female friendships got a bit of a reputation, like a bad reputation for being kind of toxic, which I hate. And I absolutely, like totally reject that character. Characterization. I think female friendship is like really like there is strong bonds and there is when a betrayal occurs, it's like a deep hurt, you know, that yeah, kind of way. Yeah. But I feel as well like we're at a kind of an interesting juncture because I think we have like all the dynamics of school, you know, they're actually kind of following us into adulthood. Why is that? And I think it's because a lot of like 
us are on social media yes. now and we had this opportunity to kind of like sort of see our friends like living their lives mm. and it can lead to kind of hurt feelings or feeling like I feel left out sometimes I'm 38 you know yeah. what I mean and I think like I see it in my mum's generation like it's still the same kinds of like friendship but, dynamics but, you see, but, the, but there can be very obvious exclusion with social media mm. can't there and, and you touch on it here you know yeah. one of the characters not to give too much away but Claire yeah um, like she feels excluded. Totally, totally. Yes. And that's the other thing, like some, some of us have these kind of legacy friendships where like you might have lived on the same estate when you're kids and then you kind of, you stay in this friendship group and you have a kind of a WhatsApp chat yeah. and, but you're all in different st- lives you now. You move on. You often don't have a lot in common anymore and mm. it's kind of, that's kind of the situation Claire finds herself in and it's all kind of brought to a head because one of the gals in the group chat is Afric. getting, Afric's getting, getting married. married. Yes, yeah. And like there's nothing like a wedding to really like, well, you the, know the politics of of weddings just uh, mad stuff, isn't absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And then, like, I think the way, the way we all kind of communicate now is the group chat massively on WhatsApp, and we all know, you know, the terrifying scenario when a group chat goes suddenly very quiet, right. and you start to think, is there a side chat going on, right. or we've all a been subgroup. a subgroup, a breakaway right. faction? Like, we've all either been in the breakaway faction or we've become suspicious. How do you, I mean, I'm intrigued. How does that start? Who broaches it? Because like, you can't obviously say it on the WhatsApp here. We're, we're, we're forming a subgroup here. So it has to be when you're out for drinks or something, is it? Let's, let's extricate X or Y from the group and let's form our own group. I am, I, you cannot make me admit to participating in this on live radio. No, but, but, but so, yeah, it's probably something like that. I suppose yeah. you could feign it that, that it's some activity that maybe this person isn't involved in. It could be, yeah, it happens. It could be a book club. It could be something. It yes. happens. It happens. Right, okay. You know, and like the, you know, the terror of the side group yes. is very real, I think. That's author and podcaster Sophie White talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about her new novel, My Hot Friend which is published by Hachette. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, reporter Mick Pilo spoke to Claire about a new documentary that tells the story of the disappearance of Annie McCarrick, an American woman living in Ireland who was last seen in 1993. The series is, 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 is about, is, is a sort of a critical uh, look at this notion of a vanishing triangle. Um, where women mysteriously disappeared um, in the 1990s because a significant number of women disappeared in the 1990s and their bodies have never been found, their cases haven't been solved and we're asking why. Why is this? Why are these cases never solved? And as a starting point, we, ha- we deal with the Annie McCarry case because hers is the first woman who disappeared in 1993. Her body has never been found. Um, the new information is interesting because um, what we discovered was that um, Annie had been three years in Ireland uh, doing a degree in Maynooth. Her parents, she, she fell in love with Ireland and her parents, she's an only child. Her parents were sort of saying, look, Annie, before you decide to settle in Ireland, will you come home and finish your master's here in New mm-hmm. York, in New Jersey? So she did do that reluctantly. And in January 1993, she said, I'm going to go back to Ireland and arrives back in Ireland to settle here, to try and establish herself here. She now has a degree. She could actually go teaching if she wants. She has to do a HDF. So that's where she's at. Two of her friends visit her her close friends. And Annie's the kind of woman, I feel as if I know her, Claire. It's extraordinary. Stage, yeah. Because I've been in her 
life for, for so long and her family's life. But she, she was an extraordinary woman who had friends all over the place. She was a gregarious, easygoing woman. Um, and two of her friends visited her in Ireland in January, um, a couple of, about a month and a half before she disappeared. Now, when she disappears off the face of the earth on the 26th of March, 1993, her family don't know what happened to her. So, and they immediately assume something's wrong. So they arrive here in Ireland within days. Her mother arrives. Her Uncle John arrives uh, with her father. Her Uncle John is a Navy, a, a US Air Force man. He can get things done. So they set about doing things. Her Aunt Maureen, who's a very close friend of hers, almost her aunt, our confidant, is in, in the States, look, talking to her friends, saying, do you guys know anything that happened to Annie? The friends who came to the see her. The friends who came to see her. And, those fr- and other friends, close friends of Annie. Uh, did she say anything? And she did, Simon. Mm-hmm. And they all put their heads together and they wrote statements. And I contacted them all. They wrote statements and in those statements they said, this is what we think has happened. This is the concerns we have. And John Covell and and our uncle got those faxes. Now faxes, if you remember, I don't know, do you remember faxes? Do Do you? They're like telephones with printers attached to them. Well, they they can replicate these statements and they came through to the B&B that John Covell was staying in and and John McCarrick and they brought these to Irish Town Garda Station. and they assumed that this this would be dealt with. This stuff would be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, and the problem was we, we think it wasn't. We, we have a clip here now of one of those friends. This is Linda Ringhouse. And she was one of the group of friends who sent a fax, one of those faxes you've just explained to us. Here's a little of what she had to say about that in the documentary. One of the things that's really frustrating is that we were never contacted by the Garda regarding our faxes and some of the information we put in. Information that, you know, to us uh, (laughs) was very telling, uh, at least, uh, you know, something to be questioned, but it never happened, uh, as far as I can remember. But you spoke to original members of the Garda investigating team and they said they never got them. Well, they didn't say that then. Uh, when I when I interviewed them first, because mm-hmm. um, uh, I assumed they had the information. Um, so when I talked to them about some of the information that was in the faxes, because I yes. had those faxes, um, and I knew how how th- these guards had worked, they'd broken their backs trying to ensure that they uh, they pulled out all the stops to ensure that no stone was left unturned. So I knew that they had worked extremely hard. So I I assumed that they had this information. Um, but when I contacted the five people that sent the faxes over, uh, none of them had been uh, interviewed by a member of the Gardaí or by a, any police officer about them. And that didn't fit with me because I had interviewed the guards and these were, I knew these guys were meticulous. Mm. So knew. the people who sent them assumed that the guards had them. Yeah. The guards didn't know they existed. Is that no, where we're at? No, the guards had no clue they even existed. Okay. Um, and so there was a problem so straight the f- away. So the family then always assumed that the guards had these messages, these yes. faxes, but they didn't. No. And so if you remember the story of Annie McCarrick, if you can remember that story, um, and most people associate Annie McCarrick, she's the one that disappeared in Johnny Fox's yes. pub. Now, and up in Enniscary. And up, in in, area, yeah. up around Enniscary, up in Johnny Fox's pub. Now, the family and the guards spent a lot of time up there working, basically doing a lot of searches. Um, and the family are wondering, why, why are they spending so much time up there? Because the faxes basically revealed information that pointed towards 
persons of interest, not just one, but persons of interest, so people that were potentially suspects who may have had motivation. And the families were wondering, why, why are all these searches going on up in Johnny Fox's? Why is the narrative Johnny Fox's? And so they began to start asking questions of the Gardaí. And the Gardaí, being guards, they don't reveal to families what they're doing. They're not, you know, they're cagey about how they're going to tell you what's going on. Yes. So the family were getting more and more frustrated. And mm-hmm. so the family sent the guards above the inv- investigating officers' heads, sent um, 20 questions to the guards based on the faxes saying have you done this have you done this have you done this can we see these statements can we see this coming and there were you know John McCarrick was very forceful um, and they were told sorry you can't have any of that information Was that back Way around back, the time? around the time in 1993, 94 okay. and there was this communication like the McCarrick's hired a private detective because they were slowly losing confidence in the, in the guards and was, in any of these missing cases confidence is crucial families need confidence in guards, course, the guardie, yeah. uh, and and there's this problem, and I couldn't get my head around what this problem was because I saw how tirelessly these guys worked, and I could see that they fundamentally did everything they possibly could based on the information they had. So eventually, uh, when I realised that Tom Rock, who was the he was the bookman, the detective, he was extraordinary. He was so detailed and meticulous. So I said to Tom, if 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 people sent you information through faxes, I assume you would have sent you would have sent people out to talk to them. Of course we would. So, do you did you get faxes with the with statements in them? I have no recollection of any faxes. Mm-hmm. So I showed him the faxes, and when he saw the faxes, he, he he just couldn't believe it. Oh my God! He said, "Had we that information, it would have changed the course of the investigation." That's RTE's Mick Pilo telling Claire Byrne about his documentary Missing Beyond the Vanishing Triangle, The Search for Annie McCarrick, the first part of which airs tonight at 9.35 on RTE One and the RTE Player. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE Radio Player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, though, for me, thank you for listening and good luck.